Welcome, Legionaries, to episode 31 of Legion Cast. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me as usual is my co-host, Brandon. Welcome, Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and often forgotten, but never by me. Those of you who absolutely hated this book, welcome to Legion Cast. My brother, Maniple. Greetings, Longbeards. Good to have you with us. This week's grudge is against books. They're too heavy. And our co-host, Paul. Back for another one. I don't have anything witty to say on books. I never touch the stuff. Well, we've got a pretty okay episode lined up. We're going to be talking about Shadows of Treachery, another anthology book. And you listeners might remember how we felt about the last one, but I'm going to say this one was pretty refreshing. And Maniple and I kind of talked about that pre-show. I thought this book was pretty okay, but... um, Anyway, we got a little bit of kind of hobby news or announcements. Well, not announcements, but um, kind of the things to talk about. The Solo Exilia parts are, well, different models are going up for pre-order this coming week. And they also announced the plastic Medusa and Basilisk kit that looks really nice. What do you guys think? Yeah, as somebody who has a bunch of 40K basilisks i was longing for a new kit and the fact that it can be built as a medusa is even better so i don't see why this wouldn't also be picked up by 40k 40k players and um splashed into a a 30k army could be kind of fun i I don't exactly know how i I would do it but i thought i like the detail of the models they look nice yeah they all look really clean the uh, battle group looks like it'll be a pretty good deal for anybody wanting to do solar ox uh, we'll just have to wait and see what the price looks like. Yeah, I really like that it can be built as the Medusa. I've always seen in the past that the Medusa was kind of the better option of the two, but it didn't have a model, so it's nice to see that they did that. Yeah, I really like how... I like the look of all the tanks, all the armor, really, for the Solo Exilia line. I think they just look like really... Uh, a lot of the models we get for 40K are like... They look like the mass-produced kind of... Um, stamp pressed tanks that are rolling off an assembly line, but there's a lot of extra bits and pieces and trim on these 30k tanks. You know, they're kind of the product of the more quote unquote enlightened age that they talk about so often. So they, they look more like a work of artifice rather than the manu- mass manufactured stuff we see a lot of in 40k. So I think they're great. Yeah, and for hobby, and I, I think those those kits look like they, could, they come with a lot of bits you could use in other things. I remember I. I've used stuff like that for objective markers in the past, you know, extra munitions and toolkits and that sort of stuff. There'd be some interesting weapon mounts to use on other other projects. I think it looks like a good deal. Along with those going on pre-order, we're also going to get the White Scar Stormseer, the Sons of Horus Dark Emissary, as well as the new Apothecary models. So be on the lookout for those. They will be on the way soon. What's on my hobby table is Indominus Terminators uh, doing some snipping and some filing, and they will eventually be getting painted purple. Very cool. I've got a really small update. I have been slacking on the hobby front, but I have been getting some 3D printing done, just more bits and pieces from the Night Lords. And I did get another Derideo Dreadnought built, so just a little building here and there. As far as painting goes, I haven't had time to do much of that. I am going to sit down tomorrow night and get some more stuff built, though, so... Wish me luck on all that. What about uh, what about you, Manipal and Paul? Um, I'm still working on the hot big hobby move, so I just spent all week 
uh, packing boxes and moving stuff down to my new hobby space. Uh, hopefully this week I can get my table set up again and then get back to some projects. I think early on in the year, I talked about doing a big scenery project for our next to get together. So that's probably going to be at the top of the list. I certainly have enough Alpha Legion to play games with. So I think I'm going to uh, switch gears to terrain for a little bit. Yeah. And I haven't really made too much progress on my end. Just work, work, work. So, uh, Finally got my weekend starting today, so I'm going to be seeing about getting some Sons of Forest done before me and Brandon get a pickup game in. Okay, so do we want to get into this book, boys? Our first story in Shadows of Treachery is The Crimson Fist by John French. Leave. Uh, a good place to start with this book is if your edition has the afterword on it. I had the digital edition. It talks about why this book was, was written. And a lot of these stories are pickups because they need to figure out why a character is in a certain place or what happened between two other stories so they can move on. So this book was a book of necessity so that they could get into kind of this kind of looks like the beginning of phase two in their, their writing process. So it's kind of a real scatter of different books and ideas, but that's why these are all together was to set up for the next section. That might help to make more sense if you're at home reading this yourself. Yeah, so uh, speaking of kind of filling in the gaps, this book, Crimson Fist, is going to be filling in what's happened with the Imperial Fists up until this point. Um, The book itself is divided into two sections. The first is going to be following Alexis Pollux. Um, The reason for the name, the Crimson Fist, is he's going to be the guy that's later in 40k is going to be the like progenitor founder of the crimson fist chapter um and so this is kind of giving his origins and rise to power um and the second part of it is going to be following mostly sigismund uh and his interactions with rogel dorn um i would say the alexis pollock stuff it's well written i do have some Um, issues with how it's written and what exactly goes on. Uh, We can get into that. The stuff with Sigismund is actually pretty good, and a lot of the lore that gets introduced is going to carry all the way through to Siege of Terra, and even it's like mentioned in End in the Death. So like all the way to the very end, this is going to be relevant. So it's worth a read. Um, In terms of a quick summary, we'll start with Pollux's line. Um... Basically, he was dispatched from Terra to go to Istvan with a fleet of about 300 ships. Uh, This was going to be a retribution fleet that would join with the Loyalists to try to subjugate Horus. They don't know that Istvan 5 has happened, but they're showing up a little late. And they get waylaid on the way there and stuck in a system near Istvan because of the warp. As they're trying to figure out what's going on, they end up getting assailed with this, like, barrage of psychic attacks. I thought this was pretty interesting. They uh, they brought out, I guess you could call them, like, psych-out missiles, which are basically these, like, torpedo tubes with a psyker strapped inside of it. They just throw at an enemy, and the psychic projection, the bow wave of this missile disrupts communications, kills astropaths and that sort of thing. Um, which I, I can't remember if they've talked about them in 
previous books in the Heresy series. I know that they've been mentioned in 40K before. The place we see something similar is in Battle for the Abyss, where the Wordbearer ship is dropping them out like mines behind them and then causing these disruptions. And this, the warp storm itself is a, is a result of the betrayal at Istvan, where because of this betrayal of brothers, um, this was exactly why Horus did this, was that this would cause the warp to become disrupted, particularly when you have brothers who are killing each other. That, that was one of the big reasons why he did this. And you see the, the loyalists getting stuck in the aftermath of that. So as they're sort of becalmed and stuck in this system, it goes to Pollux and his point of view. It gives you a little bit of his backstory growing up on Inuit and mentions how his brother sacrificed himself to save him from a beast during their trials to become Astartes and how that's something that's really stuck with him. Um, he ends up interacting with a couple other captains and having the back and forth between them not recognizing his command necessarily because it's established that he's a fairly young captain with uh, less experience than a lot of the others. So it also has a short scene introducing the Iron Warriors. Basically, the long and the short of it is Horus goes to Perturabo and says, hey, I've prepared a little treat for you. I've got this nice little 300-ship fleet of Imperial Fists just sitting out in the open for you, uh, all just for you with a nice bow on it, so go have fun, basically. So the Iron Warriors launch this ambush where they show up, and I think they mention that it's like the entire Legion, functionally, shows up and ambushes this Retribution fleet. The battle itself is pretty interesting. It's well-written. I think it's one of the first like major naval engagements we've gotten. We've gotten some like minor ship to ship combat here and there, but this is like, you know, hundreds of ships on hundreds of ships trading fire and missiles, and it's just it's chaos and explosions and it's really cool. I think the main takeaway here is Pollux ends up like rallying the defense of the Imperial Fists and ends up like pushing back the Iron Warriors. Th this was something that I thought was a little strange. Uh, you get a fleet of about 300 ships led by an inexperienced captain facing an entire legion being led by a Primarch, and they're winning the fight somehow. I thought this was strange. It's straight up main character syndrome. Yeah. Well, what I was thinking they would get, get into, because there are examples of this in real fleet combat where you have a larger fleet going after a smaller fleet and getting beaten because a small fleet with... Of more mobility can hit and move and hit and move. Whereas the oftentimes in a large fleet where you're completely surrounding the foe, you can't shoot because you might hit the guy on the other side, your ally. And so sometimes larger fleets are hemmed in by their own numbers. And I, I was hoping that they would do a callback to different, different fleet battles, like between the English and the and this Spanish, I think had a big fight like this. And then there was another Chinese, Japanese, uh, invasion that looked similar to this so but they never got into that it was just that the Im imperial fists are so good even and even at this point i think they lost a bunch of ships in that warp storm so it's not even their full retribution fleet and the um uh, they kind of get the sense like the iron warriors have overplayed their hand a little bit but i think they could have tried to explain that a little bit better better other than like what brandon said just main character syndrome, which is what it kind of plays off as. But th there would have been a better way to play that, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's 
pretty sloppy in the writing, but uh, I can see the part where they are stacking up to try and take on the Iron Blood. If they had all stacked up and made a concerted effort to try and kill that one ship, I can see it. But the fact that it's just kind of like they go for it out of convenience almost at the end. Um, yeah, it just it comes off as pretty sloppy. It's 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 not great. Yeah, I didn't like that because they really wrote themselves uh, into a corner. Sorry, who wrote this one? This was uh, John French. Yeah, really kind of you know, wanted to be like, oh, we're going to stick it to the Primarch of the Iron Warriors. Uh, but also I can't destroy this ship and I can't kill the Primarch, obviously. Yeah, that's a John Frenchism. Oh, I was going to say that does, fe- this whole half of the book does feel kind of like that, where, like Manipul saying, this book is about filling in where characters are and why they're there. And so it's things like uh, they have Captain Tear, who was established earlier in another book, if I remember right. And they're like, well, we got to figure out how he dies. So, well, he's the one that goes after Perturaba, I think. Yeah, but I, can't, I don't remember hearing about him earlier on in any of these stories. Yeah, maybe I'm thinking of something else. But yeah, and then it was like, well, we need to kill him off. And then there's Pollux, who we haven't established yet. And he needs to kind of get a move on since he's going to be big in 40K. Yeah, see, that's the thing, though. Like, Manipul, what you said about these, they felt this book was a necessity to get characters to be in the position where they needed to be. A lot of these, they they don't move. A lot of these, like, I would say, you know, uh, Prince of Crows is an exception to that. But the rest of them, nobody moves. Everybody is where you would expect them to be. They need to introduce Pollux. Nobody's heard of him yet, so he can have just not gone. So if memory serves properly, I believe the Dark King and the Lightning Tower were published before this book came out, and they got rolled into this book just to give it more beef, I think. It's so to put them into the main yeah. line so they're an actual heresy book instead of just a side right. story. Right. Yeah, and in the epilogue, they they do talk about how some characters introduced in this anthology did get their own model. You know that these were then popular characters that people wanted to build. So did did Sevatar get a model after this? I think he would be another one. Yeah, Sevatar's had a model. Sevatar's model is sick. It's a yeah, super nice model. Um, Alexis Pollock has a model. Um. They, I don't think the guys from Ravenflight, ha, uh, Raven's Flight, have a model. Like, I don't think Raven, Ravenguard they, have any character models yet. For Ravenguard, yeah, yeah that sucks. Um, interestingly, I think that they do mention there being some dreadnoughts in this story, but I think the image I have in my mind of them is that they're the old Castaferum dreadnought. I don't think we have the new ones or the contemptors yet. I don't think they're described yeah. as contemptors. So that's. That's something that we see a lot throughout the heresy is that very rarely do they specify what chassis the dreadnought is. Like very rarely do they specify somebody's a Leviathan dreadnought, a, a, a Contemptor dreadnought, a um, Derineo dreadnought. It's just he is a dreadnought. He has a big gun and a big claw. Because we um, got to remember how new those models are. I mean, yeah, for literally decades there was only one kind of dreadnought, and now we've got a plethora of choices. Well, anyway, um, despite 
kind of how the fleet action is written. Um, I kind of end up liking Alexis Pollock a little bit. What about you guys? I think he's written as a, a decent character. I, I like that he, he captures the ship at the end and, and flies it all the way to Terra. But uh, um, I guess I need to see what else they do with him. They don't wind up at Terra. I thought, where do they, could they, they capture the ship and then... No, they, yeah, they find, they find a light in the warp and they follow it to McCrag. Oh, McCrag, right, 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 right. Yeah, that's yeah. what I meant, sorry. What were we going to say, Brandon? He's an Imperial Fist, so he sucks. Yeah, so, um, seems an interesting character, and he's definitely going to have some larger implications on later lore, so we'll just have to wait and see what he does. Uh, but anyway, moving on to the meat and potatoes, the real part of this story that'll hold bigger implications. Real, real quick, one mm-hmm. thing I gotta say, I hate how he wrote Perturabo. Yeah. Uh, he wrote Perturabo as like a hot-headed, petulant child, which is just not who he is. It's kind of like the same thing they did in the Dark Angel story in the in a Primarchs book, where the, the lion just, you know, gets pissed and cuts off uh, Nemuel's head. When the lions never acted like that. Per Rabo is... He's capable of violence, but he doesn't just go around killing his officers. You know, it, it's pretty dumb. I, I didn't care for that either. I was going to say, according to this book, they beg to differ. But yeah, the, this is kind of the transition where the Iron Warriors have gone from being loyalist to traitor to being the mustache twirling bad guys that you're going to see become the sort of like background stormtrooper fodder of the heresy and 40k series they've kind of just become the sort of blank template guys you can throw at anybody and they'll be like just competent enough to be on the other side of the battlefield but they're never going to like pull off anything cool anymore yeah it's a real shame too because i know they're Graham McNeil is a controversial author on this podcast, but he really does give them character and does a really good job of it to the point where if I hear that there are iron warriors in a story that is not written by Graham McNeil, I just roll my eyes because I'm like, he's the only one who knows how to handle them properly. So moving on. uh, So the second half of the story is going to be following Sigismund who did not go with the retribution fleet. Um, in fact, him turning down the post to lead is the reason why Pollux got elevated to the position. Um, well, Pollux wasn't the original commander of that fleet. The original commander was killed when they got thrown out of the warp. So through the chain of command, it went down to Pollux, and that's why there's so much tension with the rest of the uh, captains in the fleet, because Pollux is put in that position just because he was the next in line, not because he's the most experienced. So, yeah. So Sigismund is on Terra, and basically he turned down the fleet position. Rogel Dorn was surprised, but accepted the decision and appointed somebody else. Um, and this has sort of been weighing on Sigismund because he never told the reason why he to- he turned it down, which is the before the fleet was formed, he'd been approached by Euphrates Keeler. Um, who readers might remember from the first three books as being the Remembrancer who starts to get like the psychic guidance from the Emperor. Um, And she basically like kind of guided him through this weird 
like prophecy vision sort of thing where she says, if you go on the retribution fleet, you will die. But if you stay here at Terra with your father, you will, you know, move forward to commit, you know, great acts of heroism functionally. And the decision has to be up to you to decide where you're going to go. And he had chosen to stay on Terra. And basically it's weighing on him so much that he decides to tell Rogel Dorn who is not pleased with the fact that he's listening to some psychic witch who's shown up from the Sons of Horus and is spouting all kinds of nonsense as far as he's concerned. The long and the short of it is Sigismund offers his life and penance, but Rogel Dorn says, no, I need you, you're useful, but I hate you. You're disowned, but you will keep your rank and station because now is not the time to be kicking captains out. So you're just going to keep your mouth shut and hopefully nobody notices that I'm not happy with you at the po at this point. Um, and so, yeah, Sigismund's in the doghouse and uh, ready to be the angriest of boys. I, I kind of liked these parts because it, uh, it really showcases the guilt that uh, Sigismund has for, for basically uh, kind of giving this witch Euphrates the time of day, basically when any other Imperial fist should have just either you just thrown her back in her cell or whatever. So for Rogaldorn to have a complete meltdown over an Imperial fist, not acting according to script makes a lot of sense. And the part where Sigismund tries to call Dorn father again, and Dorn says, I am not your father. You are not my son basically excommunicates him from the chapter, does everything except kick him out. Yeah, so I, I really liked that. I thought that was that was well done. Uh, it also kind of showcases the loyalty that the Space Marines have, that when they're given an order, they're supposed to follow it. And that has a pretty important result when they get the order to leave the fall system. And do you want to cover that, Paul, how it, how it ends when they get the order to retreat? Yeah, so basically, after Sigismund reveals this prophecy that he's been given to Rogaldorn, Rogaldorn realizes that the Retribution fleet's in trouble, and so he ends up sending out this powerful psychic call from Terra that ends up making it to the Fall System and the Retribution fleet. Basically, it's his voice summoning all Imperial Fists back to Terra. So this kind of goes back to how I don't necessarily like how the battle part of this story was written because it's again it's the imperial fists are winning against all odds and the imperial fists are like okay we just got this call from terra our options are we can stay here and win or we can leave immediately and take massive casualties in doing so but also be able to follow our orders and they decide to abandon the fight and take a huge amount of casualties in my head it just read as like well wouldn't it be better to just stay an extra day and win the fight and then go home but that was kind of my thing at the very end it's like they're stacked up and they're ready to kill Perturabo and Pollux is just like no I'm going to leave this massive threat to the Imperium on the board to deal with at a later date and as we know he basically carries the heresy through the Siege of Terra uh, you know, until the very end, and he's just like, you know, I don't want to play anymore. He picks up his toys and goes home. So for Pollux to just be like, oh, no, we can just, you know, forego this massive threat that I have, 
you know, in the palm of my hand was just total bullshit. Yeah, but correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this how it works in the military is that when you have an order, you might not know the full picture. And so even though you think you're doing the right thing here, you're screwing the guys on the other end of the battlefield. So when you have an order, you kind of have to follow it. I think that's kind of how it works. Yeah, but also um, something like that where you're going to take these massive levels of casualties to the point where you're almost going to lose your fleet down to just a few ships. You probably like your overall commander needs is going to look at that and be like, you know, right? And, and obviously, Rogaldor doesn't know that they're engaged. But again, this is just bad writing in that John French wrote himself into a corner where he's like, "I have these guys and they're winning." And but I need all of these characters to survive every single one of them. Right. So he did. I think he's the one that did the one about um, the guys at the Chardonhold, uh, Dantioch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did kind of the same thing. He puts a very experienced leader up against a very inexperienced leader. And they, they talk about that. And it, it ends up working out in a way that doesn't really make any sense. And basically the way you fix this story, like if, uh, sorry, the way to fix the story is just don't put Pertorabo there, put any other commander there, make them evenly sized fleets and it make it a fair fight. Don't make it, you know, 300 against 10,000. And then somehow the Imperial fist with their 300 ships win this fight or are able to win this fight, not only just win the fight, but almost kill one of the most dangerous people in the galaxy. Well, and also like you could do what Manipul said of like, you know, lightning strikes and dodging. And you could have actually made a really interesting story here where Pollux being this inexperienced commander is saying, you know, we're going to like hide in debris fields and we're going to launch out and then we're going to fade away. And other Imperial fists being like, you know, this isn't the way that we were taught by Rogel Dorn and stuff like that. But, Frankly, that just seems to be a bit beyond his his talent. But then, you know, are those ideas grimdark? I'm sure at the top of the brief it says, make sure it's grimdark. It's got to be miserable. So, it, it, it you know, what makes a 40K story? It's usually, you know, pointless warfare with all your favorite people getting killed for a pointless reason. I mean, that's kind of, you know. Well, it can be grimdark and still be good. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Like, that's, fair enough. yeah. I mean, okay, you want to make it grimdark? Take the scenario I said, but make it so they're really running seriously out of supplies. You know, something like that. You know, put them in, put them in a position where they need to leave other than daddy said go. Right, so that, that's the, the really frustrating part about it because they're stuck in the fall system for what, like six months? And Captain Tear is, you know, trying to persuade Pollux to let them leave. And Pollux says, we're surrounded by this giant warp storm. Trying to leave is just damn because he gives Tear like 10 ships to try and leave the system. And every time he tries, the ship either gets lost, destroyed, or is damaged. They damage like 20 ships. They lose at least 10. And so the fleet is just being whittled away by trying to leave the system. But as soon as Daddy Dorn gives the go-ahead to leave, suddenly the sky's clear and it's good to go. But I, I don't know. It, it gets frustrating there at the end for me yeah, too. But, but it's like you said, they don't actually have, besides that, they don't have a good reason to leave. It even talks about at the end where Pollux is going over the data after getting the, um, the message. And he's like, okay, if we stay, we win this fight. 
and we take functionally no casualties or casualties within an acceptable margin. If we try to leave right now, we will take massive casualties. But hey, the orders are the orders. So everybody abandon post and like, you know, lose half the fleet when we could have just stayed, killed Perturabo, defeated the Iron Warriors and taken like less than 20% casualties. Yeah, like, do you think Rogel Dorn's really going to be pissed that he, if they show up and say, I killed Portorabo and wiped out the Iron Warriors before I answered your order? I think he'd be You're like... You're a day late. You're no longer my son. Well, that, I mean, that's just stupid, though. <laughs> How dare you? I, I wanted know. to kill Portorabo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. Like, Maniple, what you said about, you know, just following orders... Um, isn't part of being a commander of a fleet like that being able to adapt to the orders you get? I, it seems like there should have been some a little more nuance to there than just black or white, yes or no kind of yeah. following order. And the, kind of. the implication at the end of the story is that if they had stayed, they would have won. And that's why Pritter yeah. was mad, right? Yeah. And that's like what, what you said about not seeing the whole picture you know, the commander on the ground being Pollux at that point can respond with, he has the authority to say, I cannot fall back in good order without taking mass casualties. You know, no. And again, obviously again, it's 40 K it's not regular military, but no commander is going to say, Hey, I told you to fall back and you fell back and took 85% casualties, but you fell back. So like, I'm good to go. No, they'd be like, what the fuck were you thinking? Yeah, so like we said, the the actual ship battle is not the best written, but it is fun to read, and it is uh, pretty cool action. Um, but you're you're coming for the Sigismund arc and his conversations yeah. with Rogel Dorn. Totally agree. And that's the Crimson Fist. Uh, what was the, the next story? The Dark King by Graham McNeil. Graham McNeil, and I said I was going to talk about this one because these is my Night Lords. Calling this a story is a strong assertion. It's more like a paragraph. Yeah, it's pretty short, and that's why I wanted to cover it. <laughs> um, no, I like this story because it's where we first kind of see Conrad Kurz and kind of some of the setup of his backstory, and really the Night Lords Legion all together because we immediately find them on this uh, crusade era they're this is during the great crusade they're coming to the end of a compliance they're coming to the end of this compliance and they are there with the emperor's children and the imperial fists and well this planet has surrendered the night lords are just out there executing prisoners civilians former military all this stuff and dorn sees him doing this and flips out it's like you cannot just keep executing a surrendered populace that's monstrous and Kurz kind of waxes poetic about a population that is not ruled through through fear eventually rebels and this comes back in the last story the prince of crows because it's another night lord story and Kurz is of this ideology basically that you have to rule with an iron fist uh, you have to make mass dem- demonstrations of executions to make your point known And as far as, like, imperial rule goes, this is very brutal, even by imperial standards, because if you screw up in the Imperium, you you can be executed, you can be lobotomized uh, and turned into a servitor, you can be sent to a penal legion where you get an explosive collar put on your neck 
given a las gun and a flak vest and told to, you know, you're basically a guardsman under duress. Uh, there are a multitude of punishments in this galaxy. Um, but the way that the night Lords are just mass executing Im- immediately surrendered civilians that haven't, you know, if you watch um, the Drumhead, it's a, uh, um, a Star Trek, the next generation episode called the Drumhead. And it's where they're kind of discussing this a similar situation of um, trial or no trial. You know, like the, the judge is just saying you're guilty. Clearly you're guilty of all these war crimes. We're just going to execute you. But that's not really a trial. That is just someone passing judgment. It's not the same thing. So Dorn tries to counter Kurz with, you know, you can't just keep destroying this populace. And there's a scene where Kurz gives a an old man a gun and says, no one hurt this man. Uh, it just regardless of what happens, no one hurt this man. And the, the guy tries to gun down Kurz and Kurz kills him immediately, even though he just said there would be no repercussions. Basically the point being, if there are no repercussions, if you say there are no repercussions, they will immediately rebel against you. So that is why the night Lords do what they do. Eventually it comes to light after this whole scene that Fulgrim goes to Rogel Dorn and reveals some of Conrad's Kerr's secrets. Fulgrim knows these secrets because when Conrad Kerr's was brought in, into the Imperium, when the Emperor found him, Fulgrim was the one to tutor him and was probably the closest to him at the time. Basically, the big secret here is that Kurz has been plagued his entire life knowing how he will die. And so it's starting to drive him a little more a little more crazy every day. And after seeing kind of what takes place on Nostromo and the actions that Kurz takes, you start to understand like how he can be so unstable, how he starts to come, you know, unraveled. Uh kind of in the, in the middle and in the end and why he acts in the very brutal fashion that he does. When Dorn reveals that he knows all of Kurz's secrets, Kurz loses his mind and almost kills Dorn there on the spot. He claws him, he bites him. Uh, he, like I said, he almost kills Dorn and he's imprisoned after he kind of snaps out of it. He just flies into a rage, kind of like the Angron thing. But th- I find this much more acceptable because Kurz has a very, very violent... He's kind of like the Joker. He's got kind of schizophrenia or dementia. He's got a lot of disorders. Um, he's not right in the head. And so for him to fly into this brutal rage makes far more sense than the Lion or Perrabo doing it. When he finally snaps out of it and sees what he's done, he basically kind of surrenders himself into... Uh, into custody, but they put him in a holding cell with all his weapons and armor. And he's, I think he's being held on board the phalanx. And eventually he gets a, a visitor, his equerry. And basically the equerry brings him a report about Nostromo that the Imperial governor that was put in place after Kurz left has failed. There is a murder like every 30 seconds. There's a rape every 45 seconds. Uh, uh, law and order has just devolved on Nostromo and Kurz says, you know what? I'm not waiting around for a trial. We need to go sort this out. This is our business. He dons his armor and weapons, sends out a big psychic pulse that destroys his cell, a bunch of husk calls from the Imperial fist and Phoenix terminators from the 
Emperor's children come in to try and subdue him. He kills all of them doing like the Batman thing. If you ever played like Arkham Asylum or Arkham Knight, he's like hiding in the rafters. He's killing them one by one. He's being like super creepy Batman, which I thought was written really well. I liked that scene. I, I thought that was, it, there's a scene about how Gilman, Gilman was wrong about this. They, they do not. It's not that they know no fear. It is, it's, different altogether it's more elemental it's like lightning in the marrow and so he feels the fear of these astartes because they've never been in this situation before it's totally totally horrifying for them and i like that perspective i like the perspective we get of curse the whole time and the story kind of con concludes with the fleet the night lord's fleet breaking away from this engagement getting to nostromo seeing what's going on there and curse just says there's no saving them there's only one thing we can do and they exterminatus the planet, which is pretty cool because, well, it's interesting in a way because Nostromo was famous for its adamantium exports, which is a very hard metal in sci-fi terms, almost unbreakable. And they crack the planet in half, destroy everything there and leave. And just as they're starting their bombardment, they get signals that another fleet is coming in system behind them. And Kurz says, you're too late, brothers. I'll be done by the t or I'll be gone by the time you get here. I'll be done by the time you get here. And from this point on, the Night Lords enter, and this is still Great Crusade. So they they haven't been um, exiled from the Imperium. They haven't been dealt with. They haven't been sanctioned or anything. The Night Lords kind of go into the the far reaches of the galaxy, still fighting for the Great Crusade, just playing by their own rules. And I know there are several other short stories that kind of cover these points. Like I think. Sanguinius actually ends up catching Kurz at one point and putting him in a cryo sleep to be held trial for what he does. And, and that's a whole other story. Anyway, uh, the story just kind of leaves off there of them, you know, going off in the far reaches of space to continue the Great Crusade on their own terms. What did you guys, what would you guys think all this? It always bugged me in 40K that they were presented as followers of chaos, kind of, you know, in the sense that they're always chaos marines or they were, they had access to all the other mutant stuff that chaos Marines get, but there's no indication that they actually follow the chaos gods. They just follow their own, their own way of doing things. Right. Yeah. So that's a really interesting point that comes in in Prince of Crows, because at the end Savitar is saying, you know, at the end of the Thramas crusade, he's going on about like, we didn't, we quit following the emperor because he turned out to be a tyrant and a despot anyway. And as it turns out now, Horus is no better. So why should we follow him? But even after that point, he's still set on following Horus to Terra to conclude the war and then maybe go their own ways from that point on. Uh, they, yeah, they really get put in this weird spot of, you know, are they chaos? Are they not chaos? Are they rogue? Uh, what, like what, what is their actual point? And I know there's a lot of nuance that comes in here. If you ever read about the Carcharodons, I think their chapter master is uh, technically a night lord. Um, the Ashen Claws, I think, are a night lord. They're a Raven Guard successor chapter that are also a night lord spinoff. So there might be like gene seed splicing there. And the Night Lords are often put in this kind of really weird place of not really being chaos followers. They just sided with Horus. So, yeah, it's an interesting takeaway. And I think it would be more, they would be much more interesting as a faction if there was a whole army book that was just for renegade space marines, but not necessarily chaos. That they've set up their own household on a planet. They work as raiders, pirates, mercenaries, whatever. They've got 
you know, humans that they've enslaved or, or brought into the, to the fold in some fashion, but you know, to be villains, you don't necessarily have to be a follower of chaos. And I think that would be interesting, but it's a path they've never really quite gone down, but I'd like to see that. Yeah. It's a discussion that's been had a lot with a couple of the legions, uh, the thousand sons with the whole Magnus did nothing wrong, uh, arc and meme, uh, the alpha legion two, where it's like, uh, where exactly do their loyalties lie? And why do we have chaos corrupted alpha legion in 40 K? Um, uh, it's just archangels. That, yeah. Yeah. With the fallen, it's just kind of something that they've always left nebulous the iron, iron warriors as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say the definition for being a chaos faction in game is a little different than how it's portrayed in war. Um, you know, they kind of give the black and white definition because it makes it a lot easier game wise to determine allies and enemies kind of thing. But yeah, in the actual nuance of the story, it's a lot broader in its definition. So one explanation I can give is that maybe the, the night Lords as a whole are kind of this, um, not necessarily a chaotic faction, but they did take refuge in the Eye of Terra for a time. And a lot of the kind of chaos sorcerers or night lords, uh, chaos lords that you see in 40k, maybe engage with chaos as more of a tool of convenience. So they're 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 like, okay, I found this demon sword that helps me win win fights, you know, because I'm not a fair fighter. And then he eventually becomes possessed. And we actually see something similar to that in the Pharos book. Uh, where there are a couple of Night Lord's brothers that are fighting across Pharaohs trying to take on Pollux and Dantioch. And one of the brothers is becoming like uh, less stable and more violent as time goes on. And it turns out that he's been possessed by a demon this whole time has been influencing his, his actions when they're not necessarily willing followers of chaos, but they are not immune to its influence. Um, another thing that we see a lot, kind of like uh, we talked about this with um, the last Fulgrim story. Um, there's going to be a point later in the books where a lot of these factions and legions are going to get a like 180 coin flip turnaround where it's like, ah, no, they're just good with chaos now. Here's demons. So even though they don't seem very chaos now, by the time you get to like Siege of Terra, there's definitely going to be possessed night lords. There's going to be like demons cavorting around with them. And they're going to be a whole lot more on the chaos side than they are now. Yeah. And well, and that is like, it's kind of a similar thing for the iron warriors as well. They, they just view chaos as another tool in the toolbox, you know, where the word bearers are like, we're summoning demons because demons are great and we love them. And the iron warriors and the night lords are more like, uh, we're going to summon a demon and stuff him inside this land raider because it's the equivalent of bolting on a supercharger. And that's pretty cool. So <laughs> that's, that's kind of how those, those undivided factions yeah, were. But that's kind of the, the double bladed sword of, or the two edged sword of chaos basically is that even if you utilize that tool, you're not immune to its corruption. So, well, the night Lord or the night Lords and the iron Warriors have every intention of just using this cool sword it's going to have an adverse effect on them despite their best efforts. All right. Anything else to say about the dark King? I thought this was like, again, it was so short that I was kind of like, why is it here? Like the, 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 the Batman scene was super cool, but it almost felt like that scene was like 
Graham McNeil was like, I have this super cool idea and I'm going to build an entire yeah. story around it. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. But like I said, this story in the lightning tower were written. I think they were, I think before heresy or kind of at the inception of heresy. And they were just like, let's put a couple of cool short stories out there. And they were very short. Like, like you said, um, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure it really fits in this book. But I think it's I think it does go in this book so long as Night uh, Prince of Crows is in there because it does loop back around and it does show the destruction of their, of their home planet, which is kind of a big deal. So that's a, b- a big part of the lore. What happens to all the the planet the home planets of the Traitor Legions? They all have a unique fate. Interesting that Kurz killed his own planet. It does kind of lead some questions though of like if they did this and then they're kind of on the run, why do they? then get the order to go capture Horus on Istvan five. And then they show up and everybody's just Gucci with it. Yeah. Well, so there's, there are some in-between stories. Like I said, Kurz is eventually apprehended at some point and given some kind of judgment and put back into service. So it's not explained here. It is explained later on. Which, if you think about the Night Lords, it's a fascinating case study of there were two legions that were completely purged out of history, and these guys didn't hit that benchmark. <laughs> yeah, the, them and the word bearers. Yeah. Well, the word bearers, it was like, okay, you guys are like doing some bad stuff, but well, you're redeemable. Nobody that's the thinks thing. the Night Lords are redeemable. That's the thing. There is a story later on where Lorgar goes on his spirit quest into the into the Eye of Terror, where he sees the fate of his legion if he keeps worshiping worshiping the Emperor. The Emperor unleashes some kind of. Uh, we'll get there when we get there. Basically, he sets the wolves and the Night Lords out against the Word Bearers to eliminate them and they purge them from the records. But that's just an alternate future that the uh, word bears might have gotten. All right, which one's next? Lightning Tower. I've got Lightning Tower, and I'll say I want to read the book where the Night Lords and the Wolves have a bro down against the word bears. That would be so good. Imagine them ganging up and, and cutting Erebus's head off. Oh man, that would be so cool. Uh, Lightning Tower. I think. Warwick, you had this as an audiobook when you were a kid on like on a CD, right? Yeah, it was not just an audiobook. It was like an audio play where they had like the sound effects. So when there's a scene where Rogel Dorn is running like simulations of the Siege of Terra, you get like bolter chatter and laser guns in the background. And yeah, it was, it was really cool. There's sound effects, the whole story. Yeah, it starts off with Rogel Dorn observing all the changes being made to the Imperial Palace. They're hardening the fortifications because they know that the invasion is coming and he's lamenting that they've had to, to tear down all of the, the pretty stuff and replace it with gun emplacements and higher walls and that sort of stuff. There's this beautiful image where he says when they had completed the original project, all the stonemasons laid their hammers down and wept because it was the most beautiful thing that they'd ever made. And the, implication is that it's built on top of Mount Everest and they've actually cut the top off the mountain and then built the palace there. So he's talking about, you know, looking over the views of the, um, everything that's around them. It's a pretty dramatic setting, but he is sad that all this has been taken down as he's continuing the work. 
he gets a visitor and the visitor turns out to be Malkador and Malkador is trying to get him to, I don't, I don't know if cheer up is the right word, but make sure that his loyalty is assured because it sounds like Malkador is worried that if there had been nine legions falling to chaos, there, there could be more. And he's trying to look at what Rogaldorn's, um, what's kind of going on in his mind and what's going on because he can sense that Rogaldorn has some sort of fear and he wants to know what this fear is. So interestingly, he pulls out a deck of cards as they're walking along. I think they get to his someone's office or something. And he pulls out a deck of the Lesser Arcanoi that we might later call the, the Imperial Tarot or something like that. And he remarks that this was uh, a deck that had been made on Nostromo Quintus, which means that Kurds would have used these at one time. Is that right? They were Kurz's cards. Nostromo was the planet. Nostromo Quintus was like the the main hive, I think. Mm -hmm. And so the um, so so Dorn is a little bit taken aback by that because Conrad Kurtz had nearly had nearly killed Rogel Dorn during the fight we talked about earlier. And he kind of wonders if he's afraid of the Night Lords. Is he afraid of Conrad Kurtz? He says, well, maybe, but maybe it's something else. And then they, they kind of go through some other possibilities. You know, is he afraid of having to, to fight with Perturabo? You know, he and Perturabo have had this long uh, rivalry. And it, it goes, I don't think they, I don't know that they mention it here, but the story goes that they were st- sitting around talking and the question was raised, could Rogaldorn raise a fortress that Perturabo could not tear down? And they, I think they came to blows over the question because Perturabo said, of course I could. And Rogaldorn's like, no way. So this is where their rivalry stems from. And so he's trying to, and one of the, as they lay the cards out, there's, it doesn't look good. You know, they've got the moon, the martyr, the monster, and the dark king is askew across the emperor. And then the last card is the lightning tower. Now, all of these symbols are for them, you know, omens of, of evil portent, that something bad is going to happen. And the lightning tower is a bastion blown out by lightning, a palace brought to ruin by fire. And so right away, Rogaldorn sees, oh, this will be the end of the palace. I'm doing all this work to fortify it. It's going to get blown up. Great. But Malkador says, well, maybe it could signify different things. Uh, what it reminded me of is there was a, a show I watched called Father Ted. You guys ever seen Father Ted? In the first, I think one of the first episodes, they go to this, they go to the county fair and there's a lady doing fortunes and she's dealing out the tarot cards and Father Ted doesn't want to have anything to do with it. But his, his associate says, oh, come on, Ted, let's have a laugh. You never know. There might be something to it. And they go in and they talk to the lady and she's deal, dealing with the, at the cards. And the first card she deals is death. And then another death and another death. And she says, I don't know what's happening. There's only supposed to be one each, only one in the deck. And she deals a whole hand of them to these guys. It's pretty funny. But this is kind of what, what Rogo Dorn is looking at. It's like, oh, that's bad. Oh, that's bad. Oh, that's really bad. But the other symbol could be that this is a, 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 a flash of inspiration. Maybe it's a change of fortune. Maybe it's an overturning of fate and something new. And so 
Malkador is trying to say, well, maybe there's something here that you don't see that, that you need to keep your eyes open with. So then he, and I know I'm just kind of just telling what the story is, but it's a short one. There's not much here, but basically what it comes down to is because he runs all the simulations and he's going through everything that could be possible. And he comes to the conclusion that what he's afraid of is understanding what makes Horace do what he does. And he's afraid that if he knew what that was, he might agree with him, which is a very interesting question for all the Primarchs is if, if they had the same enlightenment that Horace had, would they make the same choice? And the only thing protecting him right now is ignorance. And this is a theme that plays through much of science fiction. And I was thinking of, of Lovecraft, where in the Lovecraftian stories, they say the only thing that maintains your sanity is not being able to see how the universe is really put together. Because if you could see everything, you'd just go mad. And this is what Robo Dorn is facing. So I thought that it was is- an interesting, interesting story. <laughs> I was going to say, that's one of my favorite tropes in Lovecraftian kind of stuff is there's always a character that's so dumb, he doesn't realize the stuff he's seeing is eldritch horror, and so he doesn't lose any, like, sanity from it, which I always thought was great. And that's kind of what Rogaldorn's doing right now. Yeah, I think it's a pretty interesting question. What could be so persuasive to make the Emperor's most beloved son betray his father? Because they were incredibly close during the great crusade so close that the emperor trusted the rest of the conquest of the galaxy to Horus and Horus was ready to betray all that trust. So yeah, if Doran ever figured it out, what would, what would happen? Blessed is the mind too small for doubt. Uh, yeah. There's actually a 40 K book called, I think it's eye of terror by Barrington Bailey that came out in 1999. And it's about a rogue trader who actually ends up going on a trading mission into the eye of terror. And he actually makes it back out. And when he gets back out, he's, he's taken in by the Mechanicum and the Inquisition. And they want him to go back for this very reason. He's too stupid to understand what he saw and that protects him. (laughs) So they're like, you went in and came back out. Could, could you do that again? Because they want to get in, uh, (laughs) they want to get intelligence about what's going on in there. And, um, yeah, that idea of, of ignorance and how it plays all through the rest of these stories is, is interesting. Anything else to add or should we move on? Well, it actually plays nicely into going into the, the, the Caban project or the Caban project by Graham McNeil again. And this is a little short story about AI. This is another one that goes back. It was in a book called uh, Visions of, of Heresy. It was, uh, that was, which is kind of a big picture book that came out. And this is a short story about a Mechanicum priest who's encountered, I guess you call it a new life form. It is, in fact, an artificial intelligence. But artificial intelligences in the 31st and 40th millennium are described as abominable intelligences. And the use of thinking machines is strictly outlawed. So what he's really good at is making his own, or he, he repairs damaged uh, logic wafers and he, he repairs a damaged one. So as, as these servitors and menials come in, he takes out the bad chip and puts in a new one. And he's really good at that. Now, somehow 
he's got himself into talking with this thinking machine. And this is the, the Cabin project. And when he, when he encounters this right now, it's, it just has its main body and it has a few arms attached with some guns on it. And he just starts talking with it. And it, it kind of talks like a child. Let's see, the um, tech priest is called Ravichal, or Ravichal is talking to the command project. And it talks like a child. It's kind of trying to understand what the world is and what its purpose is. And it, he begins to reflect on just, and the guy's kind of dumb because he thinks out loud and he really shouldn't because he remarks to the machine that you're actually illegal. Like you don't belong here. Like you need to be, you know, according to our laws and customs, you should be destroyed. And as soon as he say, says that, that opens up this thing starting to think about, well, if, if somebody was going to come hurt me or one of my friends, I would have the obligation to defend myself because as a, as a thinking autonomous creature, I have the ability to defend myself. How did you guys think about how the creature or the, that part was written? Do you think it was effective? Did it make sense or was it just silly? Mm, I it kind it makes sense from the sci-fi standpoint, but with what we know about AI currently, modern day AI, uh, I don't know that it would have that be able to follow that line of logic. Oh, it could. It absolutely could. It is interesting to see now with where we're getting with AI technology, what people were thinking about it even just a little while ago. Well, it was 20 years, but yeah, this has been on our minds for a while. Yeah. I mean, this was 2012 when this book came out. So even just a decade later, like the vast differences in what AI technology is capable of now versus when they wrote this book, it's interesting, interesting to see how they view it. Yeah, but I think the story was written before this book uh, was published, though. Yeah. It's a little bit older, but... And so as, as they go through this little thing, he, he kind of realizes that, well, maybe he needs to get out of here because there were some, uh, were they Skatari or something who came to arrest him? When they tried to arrest him, the, the cabin machine goes Well, nuts. when he found out that this was an AI, he took it to, uh, was it Lucas Crom was the, uh, the, yeah, the leader of the project was Lucas Crom. He goes to Lucas Crom and says, I think this is an AI. Lucas Crom just goes, yeah, I know. Yeah, this is before that, when he's still talking to it in its workshop. Someone comes to arrest him, and the machine no. shoots shoots them right there. He shoots no, the guards, they don't and that's come, when he leaves, they don't, and he goes to They Krom's. don't come to arrest him. They don't come to arrest him until after he tells Lucas Crom that he thinks it's an AI. No, he he has to flee the workshop, remember, to get to Yeah, Krom's. There, there are knows, two. Yeah, there's two times he's in there. He's in there. He fi- figures out it's a thinking machine. He goes to Lucas Crom, and then he goes back which kind of compounds on your theory that he's kind of an idiot. Right. Yeah. But regardless, the, the second time around, the, the machine has come back. Now it's got its tracks on it and it's tracked him. And it, and he's, he's being also tracked. No, by this t- time out, time out. Your, your timeline is off Maniple. Sorry. So he, when he, after he flees, he flees to Earthsea Malevolus. And when he goes to confess to Malevolus that it's an AI, Malevolus says, I'm on the same side. And that's when he reveals the big suit of armor. There are two different tech priests here that we're talking about. Yeah, the the Kaban machine doesn't get 
the treads until after the tech priest guy flees. Because it's Krom that shows up, and after investigating what the Kaban machine has done, he's like, oh, well, this is interesting. Let's take it for a walk and see what it's really capable of. Yeah, so essentially he tells the cabin machine, like, you should probably be illegal. You shouldn't exist. Uh, the protectors show up after he's talked to Krom. The cabin machine kills the protectors. So the tech priest flees. He goes to, like, this church of the machine, which I actually thought was really cool. It talks to that that priest, and that priest is like, well, who can you trust? He's like, well, my old master, Ertzi Malevolus. He gets there. He's being chased by this tech priest assassin, which is a pretty good chase because he's got these mm-hmm. servitors that he's modified. And I guess like his combat wafers are better than anyone else's. So these servitors are actually kind of able to hold their own. But he gets in there and Ertzi Malevolus is like, hey, check out this cool suit of armor I made for the war master because I'm on his side too. He runs outside the cabin machines out there. He's like, you wouldn't kill me. We're friends. And the cabin machine is like, no, you said I was illegal. Blat. So the question is really about the AI itself is because uh, the impression I got was that rabbit was set up from the beginning because they're trying to make a, not a thinking machine, but really a killing machine. So they want to see how far, what do they need to do to program an AI that thinks for itself and could kill a friend. Or, or, you know, do something horrible. Because the um, Kilbore Hall and his cronies are not good people. And so they're doing things that are going to be uh, not good for the human race. And there's some place where they even say that, you know, we're here to usher in the next level of being, you know, to get rid of us. You know, the humanity and biological flesh should, should disappear and the machine should take over. And that's what they're trying to build here. So I think Ravichol was a setup to make a friend and then have the machine right. go crazy. So that was referenced in Mechanicum, and basically all the characters in this story are re- are from Mechanicum, or they show up in Mechanicum later, I should say, because um, uh, Zeth, um, Fabricator Zeth, mentions that uh, Lucas Crom outbid her for the services of Ravichol. And then later on, when uh, Dahlia is analyzing the Kaban machine's mind when it's in the tunnel, she sees that it was manipulated into killing its best friend. And that's what sets it on the path to this, like Maniple said, they're making a killing machine, not a thinking machine. So, Brandon, would, would there have to be something in its programming to even allow it to kill? I mean, does or could an AI just make that decision without there being some underlying programming that it would even allow that as a possibility. Well, the thing with AI is you have to put the guardrails in of where it can't go. It's not, it's not where can it go. Once you plug it in functionally to the internet, it can do anything it wants. You just have to tell it, what are you not allowed to do? So like if you talk to chat GPT and you were to type into something like, I don't know how to make my own gunpowder or something like that. It would tell you that it's not allowed to tell you that. So it's been told if you get asked this question, you are not allowed to answer it. It's really fascinating. This story is because it's, it's really kind of a parallel of today of, you know, they talk the the tech priests who are doing this, they're talking about, you know, we're the advancement of humanity and this is the next logical step. And there's a lot of, these tech priests are sitting there and a lot of this is going on today with AI currently is there's a lot of 
can we do this? But nobody's sitting there asking, should we do this? And it's kind of the nature of technology. And there have been various movies that have, or books that have you know gone on this and showed different possibilities. And it seems like it, you know, the ones where the story turns out okay is when you've got a, a, a strong moral code that forms the, uh, the underpinning of everything else. If you don't have that, and that's a problem with the society we live in now, is that many people who are working on these projects don't necessarily have anything approaching a, a moral code that, that people even 10 years ago would understand or recognize. So if you yourself don't know what, what morality is, how could you teach a computer to do that? I think that's also a big problem with the setting as a whole. Well, not really a problem, but the setup of the universe as a whole, because the emperor is going around telling people what they can't do, but not why they shouldn't do it. So when he first meets Kelbor Howell, he asks Kelbor Howell to, Howell to take him to the vaults of Moravec. And the emperor looks at it and says, keep this sealed forever. Never return here. Never open this vault. And Kelbor Howell is just like, well, we want to research everything. Why shouldn't we? And the emperor just says, do as I say. With no explanation as to why they, you know, they shouldn't go plundering this warp technology and uh, you know, start messing around with black magic, that kind of stuff. It's the same deal with Magnus the Red. He says, stop doing this research. Magnus says, why? And he says, because I said so. That's never going to work. Now, another aspect of the dark mechanic we see is this notion of scrap code. Now, scrap code is going to be different from the abominable intelligence stuff, right? I mean, those are separate tracks as I... Scrap code is functionally like computer code that's been has a, had a bunch of warp juice stuck in it. It's really an interesting concept of how the warp works because it's infecting computer code. Yeah, I can't remember what story has it, but it if I remember right, it's supposed to be like an Annuncia kind of thing, which I don't think we've really gotten into in this series yet. But it's a magical language of chaos that has a lot of power behind it. And so scrap code is that digitally manifested. So they're able to basically computer virus people just by coming in contact with it. Yeah, I think it's the Ravenor stories, like the second book where they the bad guys have like all these cogitators that were exposed to a warp storm. And they're basically having these millions of people working with these cogitators at the same time, trying to source all of the Annuncia-laden code. And they're basically trying to build a big dictionary of Annuncia, basically, and re, you know, rediscover the And they just wait till the text head explodes. Then yeah. they go to yeah, see what like, was the last word, word he looked at. <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> uh, and then you have a whole other track with the... With, um, Necrons. So the Necrons have a whole different way of looking at technology where they are um, living metal. And so, and you've got the dragon at the heart of Mars influencing human thought on technology. So they've really, and then you can even go further in 40K where you've got the Tau that have a whole different look at technology. And so it's fascinating where you can have you know, one setting of you know, the sci fi universe, but four or five different ways about looking at how technology. Uh, interfaces with the, with the human mind. And I thought this one was really interesting because th this one I think is the one that we as a culture are dealing with the most right now. 
is if you had a thinking machine with a gun, how would you deal with it? And do we, I don't know that we really have a good answer. And the, the people that are working on it, I don't know if they have good answers either, other than making sure they have an off switch. I think scarier still is, I mean, yeah, it'd be terrifying to have a robot with a gun in the room right now, but this stuff already has access to the internet and is manipulating the flow of the internet, basically. And that's terrifying enough already. So I think the cat's already out of the bag. It's like, I think Elon Musk said, once it's out there, there's nothing we can do. Well, I, for one, welcome our robot overlords. The flesh is weak. Embrace the, the purity of steel. Yeah, and there, there was a movement in industrialized Britain called the Luddites. The Luddites would go around smashing factories and, and machines because they saw that it was a threat to the future. And um, there was a pope, uh, Pius IX, who outlawed the railroad and the smallpox vaccine because these technological marvels sounded so great, but they would do nothing to save your soul. So get rid of them. And, you know, we should not fear things like human life and death and walking to visit your neighbor. Those are human things. Anything else, it just leads to this path of destruction. So it's an interesting question. Hey, the Luddites were really on to something. Something, something, the consequences of the Industrial Revolution, something, something mailbox. I think we're going to jump into Death of a Silversmith, which is our next one here. No, it's not. What are we doing it's now? It's your turn. It's Raven's Flight. It's Raven's Flight. Oh, Raven's Flight's super easy. Some stuff happens on Istavan. Moving on. Uh, no, <laughs> in all seriousness, that I mean, that is the short and tall of the story. It's, you know, in the beginning of Deliverance Lost, it talks about um, that commander. What is his name? Bran. Uh, well, Bran goes to rescue them on the advice of that prefector in uh, who is... Marcus Valerius, who is the prefector of the Imperial Army on Deliverance, he's been having visions in his dreams of, like, mauled ravens and stuff like that. Which, one of my biggest critiques of Deliverance Lost was the fact that they don't explain that at all. And then they have this short story where they also don't explain that at all. So he's got he's having some visions. He argues with Bran a couple of times. Uh, there's some good action scenes of the Raven Guard on Istvan uh, as they're hitting and running. Uh, Korax sneaks back into the drop site, sees how everyone else got absolutely mauled, and is like, "Okay, well it's just us now." And then you know they're facing down their final doom, but we know Bran and Valerius come and rescue them. That's kind of the entirety of the story. I didn't really feel like there was a lot of character development on Korax. Not certainly not what we got in Deliverance Lost. And there's there's no ex there's no expounding on this vision thing that sent them on this this trip in the first place. So I just don't have a lot to say about this book. It's a little bit of a counterpoint though to the Crimson Fist story or the Imperial Fist story, where Valerius does disobey orders to go to the rescue. So it's a little different play that the Raven guard can kind of think for themselves a little bit better, but even then they don't want to. It's the, uh, it's the Valerius thing. Valerius right. has to convince brand to go, right? He has to convince him. Yeah. yeah. It just goes to show the inflexibility of a lot of the legions at the early onset of the heresy. 
my biggest thing with this is it feels like we're getting the story piecemeal and sort of it seems like they they write the Age of Darkness story and they're like, cool, this is a great lead-in for Deliverance, even though they kind of like sort of jump the shark with that one a bit. And then they write Deliverance Lost and then they go, oh, we never really explained the whole dream thing. Well, okay, let's do that now. All right, here's the dream thing. And then they go, ah, you know, we didn't really get into it enough. And so then they're going to go back in in the next Raven Guard book and kind of like finish it out. And so it almost seems like they're writing this stuff and then going, ah, oh, wait, we forgot to talk about this. Quick, put out another short story. Yeah, but the, the problem is, is that's the central focus of this story. If you take that short story in Age of Darkness and Deliverance Lost, those two build on each other. You understand what's happening in orbit versus then they, when what happens after they get, a, get away. This is supposed to be, okay, why did they go there in the first place? Uh, because they decided to. You could take this entirely out, and it's, it, it doesn't affect that story in any way. We got all the same story beats in this one that we got in Age of Darkness and Deliverance Lost. It exactly. feels like this should have been part of the Deliverance Lost, or not Deliverance Lost, the, uh, the, the Age, Age, of Age of Darkness story. Yeah. Yeah. And we, should, we didn't get any Marcus Valerius development, which is what this story was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, this one is just absolute major, major bust for me. Like, flat out wasted pages. Uh, Graham McNeil, you need to go apologize to the trees that were used to publish. This was Gav Thorpe. Was this Gav Thorpe? Well, it's Gav Thorpe. Excuse me. Gav Thorpe, you need to go apologize to the trees no. that were used to publish. Graham McNeil is going to need to apologize to all of us for this. You're right. Time. I'm thinking about Silversmith. Yeah. But that one, at least that one, I could say it sucks for these reasons. This one sucks because it doesn't do anything. Yeah, this this book is feeling like filler. Um, in a lot of ways, but uh, this do we want to just high school student hitting a word count? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about earlier. Is that the Dark King, the Lightning Tower, got put into this book to fill out the pages? It, they were put in there for padding. They already existed on their own before this, and they, you know, they, they needed to fill this book out. Well, you know, I don't mind having this as part of an anthology, though. Like, if you wanted to get somebody started in the Horus Heresy books, you could say, you know, to introduce them to some characters, okay, here's 20 novels you can read, or this one, which introduces a few key characters. Might be just a good start jumping in place for somebody to say, okay, now if you're interested in these characters, now go back and read the rest of the novels. I think it's it could be like a, a kind of a starting starting place. They've even done that with a lot of these. Um, I know like on Audible, they have the like bigger compendiums, which is they pick and choose the most popular anthologies from this series and combine them into these big like 20 hour Audible Some of those, I've got one of those. They're actually done more like the radio plays too. So they've got multiple voice actors. They've got sound effects there. Actually, Martin Emery suggested, uh, suggested it to me. Uh, I think the first time we hung out and I, I was really pleased with how that one was, but um, anyway, yeah, they're, they're worth checking out if you want to get these, some of the more popular stories anyway. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to Silversmith then. Um, this is another pretty short one. Um, 
So we follow a remembrancer who's just been attacked, had his larynx crushed, and as he's dying on the floor, he has his life flash before his eyes. Um, the long and the short of it is he was the silversmith who lived during the age of unification. He is approached by Malkador with a handwritten letter from the emperor. Uh, inviting him to join this new order called the Remembrancers and how they're going to be the people that immortalize the great crusade that is to come. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting. The idea that this guy's getting a handwritten note from the emperor to be a Remembrancer. And he gets the job because he made a reliquary for an Iron Hand, Iron Hand. Mm -hmm. And the Emperor is so impressed with the workmanship that he became famous and then had more work than he knew what to do with. I got to say, I love all the Unification Era stuff. The descriptors, like talking about Old Earth, is awesome to me. I love it. Uh, best part, only good part of the story for me. Yeah. So he naturally accepts, and he is assigned to the 63rd Expeditionary Fleet. So the Sons of Horus. Um, so during this time, he's commissioned by Haster Sejanus, uh, to craft four rings, one for each of the Mornival members. Um, and he also then gets approached by another captain who's not named here, although it's confirmed later. It also mentions it in like the wiki and other stuff that this is Targost, the, uh, grandmaster of the lodge order that we got introduced to back in Horus Rising. Uh, to create the Lodge Medallions, a simple silver coin with a motif of a wolf and a crescent moon. Um, he crafts the rings, he crafts the Lodge coin, Targost returns and kills the silversmith. Um, and Why? Why? leaves him dying Why? on the ground. Why would you leave a blood trail? <laughs> Why would he do that? And so, yeah, so the guy asks why. Targos says, I can't say, and leaves. How very mysterious. And as he's about to finally die, Sir Janus returns. Here's him tell him that he can't say who killed him, and then dies. <laughs> this one was a weird one. I know uh, a lot of us don't like it. Dude, this one sucks. This one does nothing. There's no character set up here. And there's no payoff in the later stories either. We can cut that spoiler. This doesn't go anywhere. Um, it, this is it feels a lot like the Cabal when we're talking about the Alpha Legion. They set it up as being this really big thing. And then it just kind of like peters out. Like the Lodge was made out to be a really big deal in the first three books. And then it just... It never comes back in any really big way. I think there's like maybe two more stories that talk about the lodge, and that's about it. It's a it's an origin story for the lodge metal. If there's ever anything I've never needed more in my life, it was that. One of the details of this story that bugged the piss out of me was this guy saying that he was commissioned to join the Great Crusade at the onset, and he'd been a part of the Expeditionary Fleet for like 200 years, when in the Sons of Horus, they were a recent addition to the fleets. So, uh, 
it the timeline doesn't add up. That that really bothered me for some reason. Yeah, I remember when he mentioned that, and I was like, 200 years? That's not correct. The crusade wasn't even that long. Yeah, because when you're thinking about it in Horus Rising, like Euphrates Kila and the rest of the Remembrancers, um, Ignis Carcassi, don't have permission to do anything because they're brand new. They're And they're the first wave of Remembrancers to hit the Expeditionary Fleets. Except this asshole's been with them for 200 years, and then gets murdered and nobody's going to ask questions for the next dozen books that we read about how this famous Miller silversmith was murdered in his workshop. Yeah. Well, and this is, so get your tinfoil hats out guys. It's been a long time, but we're going to be doing our conspiracy theory section here. I think this was the setup to a much greater story about the lodge in which Sir Janus is going to be investigating this murder and end up going like head to head with Targost, which is going to eventually lead in his uh, death before the events of Horus Rising. You know that that's where I read this could have gone. Um, obviously, it didn't because they never wrote that story. But that's the only way I see this as being like, you know, a logical necessity as part of the storyline. I I will say about the uh, the continuity error there. Uh, Warwick, we all know how Graham McNeil feels about continuity. He doesn't. Great. He fucking yeah. hates it and says that it shouldn't be important, and that's why I don't like him. Yeah, and that's he says that because it makes up for some of his lack of editing. Yeah, it's just an excuse to be inconsistent. So yeah, I mean, this was a pretty cut and dry short one. Uh, I would say this one's a skip because it doesn't go anywhere and doesn't really give you anything you need. Maniple, anything to add? Well, this would have made sense if at the same time the book came out, they also offered a limited edition coin you could pick up at the GW shop. Oh, man. If they ever sold a Lodge medal, I would be all for it. Yeah, see? Well, I'll check Etsy and see if there is one. Pretty sure I have one in a bag around here somewhere. Got it with my Age of Darkness box. Anyway, moving on to the last one, Prince of Crows by Aaron Dembski Bowden. And I think every story that we've read from him so far, we've all liked. Um, I think he is a very solid writer. I know that um, we had our friend Martin on for The First Heretic, which is an a, uh, ADB book. So um, I'm always pleased with his writing style. I think he does a great job. He also did the 40, uh, like a set of three 40 K night Lords books that I, uh, I actually just picked up on audible. I will be listening to them soon. I hear they're really good. Uh, he did hell's reach, which is a phenomenal dark Templar or black Templar story. Um, just all around good writer. We've had really good luck with him so far. And I think he, he does a really good job with Prince of Crows because we get the end of the Thramas Crusade, which starts off with the Night Lords being ambushed by the Dark Angels, which is the exact opposite of what we have been told is going on so far. The Night Lords have had every advantage in this war and kept the, the Dark Angels tied up for several years out here in the Ascent of Space, keeping them away from what Horus is doing as they should be. Now... The Lion and his fleet jump in and annihilate a quarter of the Night Lords in three hours. So it's their drop site massacre. Uh, the Night Lords are able to pull away and get to safety for a short amount of time. 
in uh you know eventually they get out of there but not before the dark angels catch up in the meantime we get some we get a scene with Sevatar and what is called the Chiroptera, which is a gathering of captains. Which is a gathering of captains that form kind of the upper echelon or kind of the, the greater command structure of the Legion. In this last engagement, or the, the first engagement with the Dark Angels, the Lion actually mortally wounds Conrad Kurz. And the captains and one of the apothecaries, I think, are talking about how uh, the the night haunter suffered at least eleven wounds that would have killed a normal Astartes, and he's had to have been resuscitated thirty six times and kept on life support this entire time. So, as far as we know, Kurz is dying. This is the end for the Night Lord's Primarch. Now, there's a scene where the the th three out of four, uh, there are four surviving members of the Chiroptera, and they're arguing with Sevatar about what they need to do. Sevatar's like, I'm taking everyone that'll listen to me, and I'm following Horus to Terra, and we're going to finish this. And the others are like, no, we need to hit the, the Dark Angels back, or we need to flee. And it... Sevatar's just like, it's a death sentence. We can't survive out there on our own, and we can't go back to Dark Angels because they will kill us. And so before Sevatar can finish, he throws his spear down, his, his power glaive down on the table, and says, I'm going to go see the Primarch. You guys figure this out by the time I get back. And there's only one captain in there that knows the secondary function of Sevatar's power glaive. It's got a teleport homer in it. And I, as don't, soon as, I don't want to step on you here, but that's a chain glave, baby. It's way chain, more metal than a power glave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ch uh, chain glave. Thank you. Um, it's got a teleport homer in it. And Sevatar leaves the room, and one other captain realizes what's going on and runs for the door. The other captains draw their bolters at the exact same time that the Atramentar Terminators teleport into the room and kill these disobedient captains. Which was pretty brutal. And Sevatar's just hanging outside the door. So when the other captain runs out and says, you were going to kill me! He just says, nah, you were smart enough to run, and tells the Atramentar to leave him alone. Sevatar then appoints new members to the Chiroptera, one of which is a former Raven Guard, who I don't have any backstory on. I, I don't think I've seen him anywhere else. He was a Raven Guard that ritually broke all the icons off of his armor and joined the Night Lords. And he's had his tongue cut out. He's a mute. I think he, this is the only time we've ever heard of a Legionnaire jumping ship to another Legion. No, we've had some sent as emissaries or attaches, but like this is the first time one's like, nah, I'm painting my colors different. I'm going to be blue and red now. Let's do this. Yeah, and this was the only disappointing part of the story for me is that we don't have any more backstory on this guy yet. When and I want to know what his story is because it's it's I think it's talked about how he was taken prisoner at Itstavon and he changed colors after that. Well, anyway, uh, there's some back and forth with this um, this psychic that tends to the Night Haunter's dreams, and they call him the Sin Eater. And the Night Lord has been. Uh, Conrad Kurz has been plagued by these terrible nightmares of the things that he's done, the things he's had to do, the fate that is inevitably his. 
And this Remembrancer just like kind of psychically absorbs them and writes them down. And he's, he's the Night Lord's scribe or adjutant, whatever. And uh, 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 it's kind of hinted out that Sevatar is kind of hiding his own secret. And we're not really sure what it is yet until he gets to the infirmary with the Night Lord or with Conrad. I keep with the Night Haunter. Sorry, I keep saying the Night Lord gets to this infirmary with the Night Haunter and communes with him psychically. And we find out that Sevatar has been this psychic for the past, you know, hundred years, but he's been doing these strict disciplines to suppress his psychic ability because he doesn't want to be a psychic because he's, he avoids sleep because he'll get these psychic dreams that are like premonitions and he doesn't want to be like the Night Lord. So he's trying to suppress his psychic ability. Now, this story here, I remember... Um, when we, Brandon, when you and I went over uh, the outcast dead, when uh, a father is able to sever his psychic connection, that that happening devalues a character like Sevatar, who has worked for a hundred years to not be a psychic. And the fact that this Thousand Sons gets to do it in a single line of dialogue pisses on a far better character than this thousand sons from this terrible story was Sevatar is dealing with this, this horrible thing in his life that is affecting him every day. But then other psychics can apparently just turn that connection off on a whim. Yeah. I don't want to talk about the outcast dead. It was dog shit. Um, Agreed for various reasons. And this anyway, is not, this is not, this anyway, the, what what I'm getting at is this is how you write a good psyker that doesn't want to be a psyker or, or is put in a position where they can't be a psyker anymore. It's not an option. It's an immutable characteristic that you are, are born with. Other stories that say you can just turn it off, that doesn't make any sense. So that's why this story is good, because Sevatar is dealing with it in a way that affects him very deeply. Anyway, in this, uh, this kind of communion that we see with the Night Haunter, uh, is basically Sevatar gets to relive the... You know, since the Night Haunter crashes on Nostromo, comes out of his gestation pod, goes about the city kind of observing people, hiding, um, catching rats and dogs to eat, and eventually kind of taking on this mantle of, for lack of a better term, super messed up Batman. He becomes this kind of dark Avenger in the night, um, killing gangers, rapists, murderers, taking anyone to task for the slightest thing. Thieves. Uh, he's got this strict moral code where he kills this group of gangers that are assaulting people. And the Night Haunter knows he could take money off the bodies and go buy food, but he won't do it because it would be blood money. You know, that's how strict his moral code is. And, you know, even starving people that are stealing food he would prosecute them as well. well. I say prosecute, but basically murder them as well. The, the punishment on Nostromo for him is, is the same. Uh, the punishment on Nostromo is the same for every crime to him. Every crime is a uh, death sentence, basically. And it gets to the point where this whole mythos has been built around him in the populace. Like they give him the name, the night haunter, you know, mothers are telling their children stories about the night haunter to make him, you know, behave. And eventually it gets to the point where he's, he's killed so many low level people that, that the, um, the crime Lords are all gathering to try and figure out what to do about this problem. Because 
uh, bounty hunters, mercenaries, thugs won't take money to go after the night hunter anymore because they all know how it ends. So the gangers meet up or the, the gang leaders meet up for this big meeting. And then he's just there. And he says, this is where it all ends. You all surrender to me, to me now and I'll be your king. And after that, we get this next scene of the emperor's arrival on Nostromo and Kurz has had premonitions of it this whole time, which I think is really well written. I had a lot of fun with, with this. I, I just, uh, I thought all the scenes, I thought um, Nostromo being described as this, um, you know, pitch black Gotham like hellhole full of crime and murder and, and this, that, the other was really well done. And then to get this scene of this clean, orderly, but still very dark Nostromo, um, and Kurz was, is saying, you know, in this scene, he hasn't had to prosecute a crime for a couple of decades now because he would broadcast his punishments across the shared um, broadcast network. And after doing that a few times of flaying family members alive, um, crime just stopped because they knew uh, how harsh the punishment would be. And then when the emperor shows up during the ceremony of meeting the emperor, there's some very good exchange there of, of that. And then out of nowhere, Kurz turns and faces Sevatar in this dream. And Sevatar is standing there as a full-on space marine, not a child on the Stromo as he may have been at the time, if he was even born yet. Anyway, Kurz just says, you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be in this memory. And they kind of have this interesting exchange of, you know, why are the Night Lords the way they are? What do they do? You know, why is this our way? Did we ever try any other way? And Sevatar kind of calls the Night Haunter out. It's like, you never even tried anything different. This was, this was always what you did. You know, the Legion does this because you did it. And as I know now, you never tried anything else. You just went about murdering people or, you know, punishing them. And Kurz says, I did what I had to do so that no one else did. And it, he kind of sets him up as this dark savior, basically of, um, you know, I did all this evil stuff so that no one else had to do it. And it's all for naught. And the question I think at the end kind of remains like if the night Haunter had been more of a benevolent entity instead of a vengeful murderous one, would Nostromo, would he have ended up needing to blast Nostromo 200 years later? And then uh, the dream sequence kind of concludes there and the Dark Angels are attacking again by this point. And Nostromo leads a, uh, kind of what I talked about in the Crimson Fist about how if they had made a concerted effort to wound the flagship, things might've been different. Well, the Night Lords do this. Sevatar is just like, focus everything on the invincible reason. We're going to, we're going to kill the lion. And as he's getting ready to do that, he gets a message from Kurz who has woken up out of his healing coma and says, we're taking this fight to the dark angels. Um, I'll, I'll see you when you get there. And so he takes all the Atramentar terminators and deep strikes onto the invincible reason and takes the fight to the lion again. Now, Sevatar has a really interesting way of getting back to or getting over the Insular Reason because they lose power, power to the teleporters. They can't fire um, 
boarding pods or boarding torpedoes, and they can't launch gunships. So he calls in a fighter squadron that he's buddy-buddy with, which gets explained at the very end of the story. He maglocks his boots to the back of this fighter's, uh, fighter and flies over to the Invincible Reason, pulling you know countless Gs, basically, in the void of space, dodging through you know, other fighter squadrons and incoming ship fire and boards the invincible reason on the back of a fighter squadron. I thought that was really cool. Did you guys have anything you wanted to add to this story? Well, we've talked a lot about moral choices and, you know, uh, moral foundation for someone's life. And I think that Kurtz makes the assumption that fear is the best of all motivators. And that's the only one that he understands and sees, but it's clearly disproven because, you know, as soon as they leave, yeah, they do go back to their ways. He's not really doing anything that makes a lasting impression on the people because once the oppressor is gone, they don't have anything else to rely on. So did he try to impart on them some kind of a moral code that might last or some sort of incentive to do good? So I think it's, it's almost, too simplistic. It kind of made me think about the emperor's way of thinking in the last church where he can only see things one way and there, there's no, there's not any nuance or any discussion about, well, maybe there's a different way of seeing things. It's just odd that he's so intelligent, but can't see any other way of, of acting other than what he's been programmed to do. And this does seem to be a theme that goes through a lot of the traitor legions um, it's just that, like, what is what would Angron have been without the nails? What would Mortarian be without his upbringing in the gas clouds? That sort of thing. Um, it's just a lot of the uh, the what if kind of scenarios that get played out in a lot of the characters' heads. And it is kind of a callback to the um, understanding of the, the the fall of the angels in Judeo Christian uh, theology. Is that once the angels who follow Lucifer make their decision. They can't choose any other path. They're now stuck there for eternity. Likewise, the good angels who decided to align with God's plan, they're there for eternity. Human beings have free will and we can make change our minds from day to day. Whereas the primarchs have this more angelic way of thinking where once they make a decision, that's it. There's no other way of seeing it. And they're just locked in. It's interesting that none of them try. You get just a little hint of that in the lighting tower where Dorn is wondering, if I knew, would I change my mind? But he's probably not even going to open his eyes enough to see it even when it's in front of him. Yeah, I mean, like, Fulgrim, in Fulgrim it implies that he has regret. Now, I think they could have done something with that and they chose not to. That's kind of the the Fulgrim, I don't know if fallacy is the right word, but the, the conundrum with with Fulgrim is like, if the story in, Pri- in the Primarch's book hadn't happened, the, the reflex- reflection crack hadn't happened, would Fulgrim be redeemable? It's, it's uh, yeah, it's, that's the big question. If, go ahead. Yeah, without, the, without that cracked story, Fulgrim could have been the most interesting character of all of them. But because he just says, oh no, I just kicked the demon out and I realized he was right, so I'm just going to do whatever I want now. He just becomes just like all the rest of them, just an automaton. Yeah, they really flatten out his character there. Yeah, which I have to wonder if they did that for the sake of time. Um, Like I said earlier when we were talking about like Night Lords and Chaos, 
especially once you start getting towards the Siege of Terra, they kind of like wipe that all away and they go, ah, actually the Thousand Suns are just cool with chaos now because we need them to be, otherwise Terra is going to be weird. So, yep, they're cool with it, sort of thing. Yeah, we had all these cool plans on giving yeah. them a really deep character, but we don't mm-hmm. have enough time and books to do it. Magnus is another one that you'd be like, does Magnus have a redemption arc? Um, they'll never give it to him because they've written him in such a way that's just like, eh, this is what I do now. I'm a chaos boy. Yeah. I'll always be a chaos boy. Well, and it's especially kind of- with the new 40k lore, uh, the new Gilliman books, they basically confirm at this point that Magnus is locked in. Like the hints that Magnus did nothing wrong and is totally redeemable, they've thrown that out. That's not a thing anymore. It, yeah. It's kind of a shame too, because it, honestly, if we're being real, it's a 54 book series, but there's a lot of wasted pages. That's, that's my big beef with a lot of this so far is keep this filler garbage and give us some just better stories. Um, a couple of better stories, keep all this filler. I think we'd be a little happier. Yeah. I have to wonder what it, what happens behind closed doors when they plan these books because from what I've heard in interviews, the majority of the heresy was pretty well planned out in terms of like who was going to be where and how things were going to happen. They just didn't have the actual stories written. Um, and it just kind of seems, especially at this part of the series where we've hit the halfway point, it feels like they're kind of like, all right, we kind of know where everything needs, where everyone's at and where everything needs to be, but we're kind of just at the point where we want you to just write content indefinitely. So write whatever you want and we'll kind of just figure it out there. And then a lot of like these anthology books in particular is, uh, you know, we didn't really get into the visions thing. Uh, go ahead and write Raven's flight to add a little bit more context or uh, we need Alexis Pollux to be here. Go ahead and write this story kind of thing. Almost yeah, like well, course it, corrections. It, it feels like a lot of these books have been meandering a bit. Uh, like, why are we still at this point going back to the drop site massacre? When, like, why haven't we gotten to... Um, we've had the betrayal at Kalf now. It kind of feels like we should be on to our next big story beat, which is Imperium Secundus. Right, so that's the crazy part. We the the first story, the Crimson Fist, they wind up in Imperium Secundus, and then later on in the book, we have a Istvan story. Yeah, the, I mean, a lot of these a lot of these stories in this book don't even take place in the same like uh, aren't even in the same part or in the same space as the same timeline or whatever. They're not in the timeline in, in the same spot, I should say. I will say. Um... Prince of Crows is the highlight of this book for me. Like, yeah, I really like this story. Everything else in this book besides Prince of Crows, I would say that that, that would be an acceptable position. Sevatar is awesome. Sevatar's the goat, hilarious. man. Yeah. I um, freaking I love the conversation when he's talking to the psyker dude who's like calling him by his first name and he's like, just so we're clear, I will kill you. And he's like, Oh yeah, the Primarch's not actually here to defend me, so maybe I shouldn't talk so much shit to you. What I was thinking when I read it was, I wish that they'd written the story about Lucius and the Cracked Mirror like this. You know, and and I, I wish that when you're talking, because you can kind of see there's some some parallels there where he's trying to do things, but 
I, I just don't know that Lucius was the right character for that story because you kind of end up rooting for him. But you're like, it's friggin' Lucius. Why? Sevatar is a much more interesting and like, well, likable. Is that the right word? Character? He's very pragmatic. And, you know, like when they get ambushed and beat up by the Dark Angels, they gather back together and the rest of the Chiroptera is like, we need to regroup and take the fight to him. And he's like, listen, guys, we had a good run, but it's over now. Yeah, I think they did a really good job of nailing, or ADB did a great job of nailing the uh, Night Lord's attitude towards all this. And then at the conclusion of the story, we find out that um, the Dark Angels win the day. They capture very many of the Night Lords um, and imprison them on board the ship, to which Sevatar has just had a heyday with, because they, at first they lock him in just a standard like metal cell, but... Night Lords have a very powerful Betcher's gland, which is the acid organ so they can spit acid. And he melts through the wall. And when the guards come back, he's like, I think rats did it. <laughs> so he's kind of trolling a little bit. He gets put in like a force cell after that. But um, the, the, at the, the very conclusion of the story, we find out that his century-long discipline of not using his psychic ability has now been undone. And he's like his nose is bleeding. He's got um, like sores around his eyes. Um, he looks very haggard. Uh, and so all this, um, this psychic, uh, I guess the psychic power that he's built this bulwark against is now rushing in and he can't really stop it. And there's a really cool story later on where he's still, he's still a prisoner on board the invincible reason he's dealing with that. And there's somebody else on board that's also dealing with something and they're communicating. So I can't wait to get to that one because I think it's another really good story. So anything else you guys wanted to add? I really love his attitude towards uh, the Primarch, uh, towards Conrad Kurz, uh, especially specifically towards the rest of the Legion. Because um, he really embodies what I've always kind of envisioned the Night Lords as, whereas kind of the rest of them didn't as much. And... You know, the, like the Chiroptera is like, well, what are we going to do about the Primarch? And he's just kind of like, you know, the Primarch's kind of a dick. So I don't really care. Um, and then he rebuilds the Chiroptera after killing the old one. And they're like, oh, I just noticed that you stacked this entirely with captains loyal to you. And he was like, well, yeah. <laughs> That's like the one surviving member of the original Chiroptera ask the atramentars like what does Sevatar give you that makes you so loyal and they just go he gives us the truth and they teleport out of the room so cool yeah it looks like the night lords came out the winners in this one um yeah this anthology wasn't bad uh, there are a couple of these that are pretty rough to get through but the ones that really shine are really good um even the ones that i didn't necessarily like i found interesting they all had at least like one or two little lore tidbits that were cool. Yeah. There were a couple things here and there that I enjoyed. Um, yeah. There, there were only like two duds for me. I want to say one or two duds. I'd say even if they weren't all great, it was pretty painless. I read this pretty quickly. I thought there was some good action and introduced us to some characters I wasn't familiar with. So overall I'd say this would be a pickup for me, honestly, even if it was filler, it was, if you just want a fun science fiction book to read, it's it's 
you could do a lot worse. I, I, I would say it was, it was worth my, my time and energy. I'll, I'll say even with the one story that, that, that I really didn't like death of a silversmith, this is still a good book. And it's one that I would recommend to people. Uh, it is a night and day difference from the last couple of anthologies. I want to say that we got because they, they, they've been really rough to try and get through, but this one was an easy read by comparison. Listen to Prince of Crows. Skip the rest. You'll be fine. the 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 one forgiving factor factor of the death of a silversmith is that it's mercifully short. Yeah, that was the other thing I noticed is because I think Lightning Tower is only like twenty pages. Silversmith's really short. It, it was mostly Crimson Fist, Prince of Crows, and Raven's Flight were the three big ones because those are like four hours a piece in the audio drama. And then the rest are like an hour. Well, do we want to wrap up and get out of here then? I think this has been a fun episode. Let's do it. Thanks guys. Good conversation. Appreciate it. Well, why don't you guys go ahead and look us up on social media? We are Legion cast or horror Cersei podcast on Twitter and shoot us an email at legioncast 18 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening in and don't forget to share this with all your buddies. Yep. Thanks for stopping by everybody and never forget when in doubt, say the rats did it.